how the field has changed so much, I guess, over your career. Um, so I just wanted to start with a bit of a background on where you started, how you decided to make a career in the field of PGT. Um, so if you could just talk to me a little bit about what you studied and how you found yourself moving towards both a PhD and an MD, that would be great. Thank you. Hmm. Well, it's good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I, I, it probably, probably no one's interested in the detailed history of where I've been, but the, uh, the basic issue was that I decided I was going to go to medical school and then changed my mind at the last minute and decided that instead I really was in love with science and I wanted to uh, pursue that as a career. So I went and got a PhD in molecular biochemistry. And then um, I was going to go to medical school and changed my mind again and did a postdoctoral fellowship. And then I went to medical school finally, and then did an internship and a residency and uh, became a licensed physician and um, started taking care of patients. But I didn't, so I didn't do those degrees and that training as a, as a, in tandem, like one, one MD PhD program, I did them totally separately with um, fellowships and postdoctoral training in between and, uh, uh, and the reason I did this is um, most people who get both degrees are interested in um, the PhD to make them a better physician because they'll think more analytically and understand mm -hmm. physiologic and um, metabolic processes in the human more if they've um, had formal training in being a scientist. For me, it was really the other way around. I was mostly in love with science and I thought that um, being a, a clinician would make my science better. It would focus my science on things that I knew were of importance uh, in the field of taking care of folks. And um, so while I enjoy taking care of patients very much, um, the big, uh, high amplitude, low frequency wave of life is science for me. When you're at the top and you're discovering something or doing something no one's done before, it's a high that is hard to beat. But then when you're on the low part of that curve and uh, things aren't going well and your grants don't get funded and mm -hmm. you don't think people like your ideas anymore, or your manuscript gets rejected or whatever, now you're down in the doldrums. So my personality wouldn't allow me to have those kinds of swings. So superimposed on that, I've got a very high frequency, low amplitude wave that changes every day. At, at the end of every day, you know that you did you made the diagnosis, but I did the right thing for that patient or how in the world did I mess up so bad? How did I miss that? Um, what can I do not to have it happen again? Mm -hmm. um, so you have a daily feedback into your 
personality. Mm-hmm. And I needed both of those. So I superimposed them. And your your passion for science, you know, has really, really led you to where you are today. But it's that linking linking the science constantly back to those patients and those lives that you're touching. And yeah, it makes a lot of sense that how you kind of interwined the two and have kind of built your career really but um, one of your big accomplishments in terms of of the science side of things was the realization that single cells could be molecularly data mined for diagnostics Um, how did this help um, um, birth the field of PGT can you explain a little bit um, sure well (laughs) like in life uh, you don't appreciate where the forks are in the road until you look back Mm -hmm. and then you went this way instead of that way and all the people you met and all the ideas you had are different than they might otherwise have been. And you always wonder, you know, what would have if happened if you had taken, taken the path, other, uh, other, yeah. other road? Well, well, for me, it was a, a confluence of two things. Um, one was that I had been working in steroid hormone receptors and we had cloned the progesterone receptor and the vitamin D receptor down at Baylor in Houston mm-hmm. in a famous scientist, uh, Bert O'Malley's laboratory there. It was a whole group of really outstanding scientists. And and the reason that was important was because uh, I was very much interested in um, regulation of gene transcription. Mm -hmm. And we had figured out how to um, analyze the genome from a single cell, uh, whatever kind of single cell you wanted. Now, you have to understand in those days, the only people that were doing anything in a single cell were um, neurophysiologists where they put little tiny probes into a cardiac cell and measure an electrical current and say when it tries to beat. But nobody was analyzing nucleic acid, mRNA and DNA in something as small as a cell. We figured out how to do that. And um, I was, I had a whole lab full of people doing this and a lot of what we were doing was in reproductive medicine. And then um, I get a phone call from Alan Handyside, who's a uh, well-respected, uh, in fact, in my opinion, the father of the field. Um, he's, um, he's an embryologist uh, who was at uh, the Royal Postgraduate Medical School at Hammersmith Hospital mm-hmm. at the time. And um, he was, he and Bob Winston had been um, trying to do um, pre-implantation diagnosis and had thought they figured out how to do embryo sexing. Mm-hmm. And um, the reason they were doing sexing was not to give a couple of male or a female embryo, but uh, as a social reason, they were doing it to avoid X-linked inherited diseases right, by transferring okay. female embryos. And they were doing this with a, a disorder called adrenal leukodystrophy, which the gene is on the X chromosome. Yeah. Mom carries it, passes it to half of her sons. So they did the first case of PGD. It was called PGD in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, they did the first case of it in gender sexing and, and published the paper in Nature in Nature magazine. Um, then they uh, did a few more and they realized that their test was unreliable and that they were having some issues. Okay. And that's when they called me and said, okay, you guys do this all the time. And so I said, well, tell me your protocol. What are you doing? And I realized right away what the problem was. And this is where... Uh, feels make jumps. It's because people who are experts in what seemingly quite disparate fields of knowledge come together. Yeah. So Alan was about as good of um, um, uh, 
of embryologists as you could find in the world. And, um, and so he reached out to people who do genetics and, uh-huh. mo- and molecular biology. And then we teamed up with Bob Winston as the reproductive endocrinologist and, um, and did the first cases of uh, PGTM. Um, in those days, it was all for cystic fibrosis. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. So that was the first um, case in 1992. Well, that's when we published it. Right. Uh, she okay. already was a little older. Mm-hmm. We were waiting to see how things were going to be after she was born, the first one. Yep. Um, so in 1989, the gene for cystic fibrosis was cloned yep. um, by, by uh, an American scientist, um, Francis Collins and and a Canadian scientist, Lapshi Choi, mm-hmm. at, at Sick Kids in Toronto. And you needed and, that And that information, first. finally finding the cystic fibrosis yeah. gene on chromosome 7, mm-hmm. gave us a target of a common disorder. Yeah. And in those days, uh, kids with that were born with CF didn't really live to be teenagers. Yeah. Well, was when ra- you look at it very now, rare. it's amazing. Well, so all of medicine has come to the fore and cystic fi- people who are born with cystic fibrosis now, um, we, we see them come to IVF centers to have children. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, uh, the, the, the disease isn't even remotely like it was 30, 35 years ago, 30 years ago. But um, it was a, 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 a common disorder that at the time was um, pretty awful yeah. and um, was something where people might want to avoid by having um, this kind of technology. Mm-hmm. Now there's a, a parallel to this. And that was that when I was down at Baylor, um, my chairman said, well, you're a physician, so you've got to do something clinical. <laughs> and he said, I want you to take the role that I've been doing because I'm chairman, I'm too busy now. So I want you to go and, uh, and head up the uh, genetic counseling group. And we had a very large group of genetic counselors. And I didn't know anything about genetic counseling. So they really put me through the ringer and taught (laughs) me and taught me uh, how to, how to, uh, uh, do non-directed genetic counseling. And, um, and they were hard on me. I was like, I was a, a medical student for them again. Um, but I got tired of telling people who were pregnant with a, a child, like say with cystic fibrosis, with a fetus with CF, now that the gene was cloned, you could diagnose you it with an amniocentesis. Yeah. And, uh, and then tell them, well, um, your, your, your fetus has this disorder and you only have a few choices. you could elect not to have any more kids. Um, you could go out and adopt. Um, you could throw the genetic dice again and hope for the best. Because obviously it's a three out of four chance of yeah. being normal. Um, or, um, and then if it turns out to be affected, uh, you could terminate the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Well, those were, it, I don't care how you feel about pregnancy termination and what your view is. No one in their right mind wants to walk down that pathway from the beginning. Mm-hmm. I don't, it, it's just not the way you want to go. Of course, um, you're faced with a dilemma. And that's, yeah. that's where the beauty of taking patients who had no fertility issues at all. We're not even thinking about assisted reproductive technologies. They had a genetic problem. Mm-hmm. And you pretend that they're infertile and send them off to an IVF clinic. Um, uh, you know, you wouldn't have even imagined that until these pieces of the puzzle all kind of came together and led us there. Mm-hmm. I think it's pretty cool hearing as well how you've got all these different players. Like you've got the geneticist, you've got the 
the genetic counsellors, you've got the physicians, and I think it's everyone has that common goal, especially in this case for that one patient to just basically gather more information so that the patient can make that more informed choice much earlier rather than finding out that information like you're saying later down the path and then having having these awful decisions to make so I guess a lot of it is having the information earlier for the patients in this field. that's always been the case in um in a prenatal diagnosis you know from the days when the physician would just put his or her hand on the belly and said yep everything seems fine to high level to ultrasounds and then higher level ultrasounds and then mm-hmm. Doppler ultrasounds and then amniosis and tesis and then chorion villus sampling and then um, non-invasive prenatal testing. And, uh, and then you can go all the way back to an embryo, but realize that what, what was happening here was we were pushing diagnostics to its theoretical and practical limit. Mm-hmm. We were studying the smallest unit of life, one cell, for the smallest unit of inheritance, one gene, for the smallest possible part of a gene, one nucleotide letter in the DNA. Yeah. And we had to do that by tomorrow morning. Yeah. So it was the really the limits of, of diagnostics, not just theoretically, but really it yeah, was. Yeah. Um, um, so that was, and then the other thing that people sort of forget because all these years have gone by. But in the United States, all the IVF clinics were transferring two pronuclear embryos to the uterus in those days Mm -hmm. or growing them till the next day and you'd have maybe four cells or, but no one was able to grow an embryo uh, at the time out to day three um, where you could biopsy a single cell from from one blastomere from a three-day-old embryo. And then have the data soon enough because you'd have you'd want the data later that afternoon, mm-hmm. right? Um, so on day three, we'd biopsy the embryo and we would test the individual cells and have a, a, a report ready uh, by the late afternoon, early evening to do the embryo transfer because the embryology just wasn't there to allow us to grow the embryos longer. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's changed quite a bit now. Well, probably the biggest thing that's happened besides all the marvelous advances in understanding embryo growth and all of that is cryo. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the old days, if you, you know, most of the embryos you froze didn't make it. And so you didn't want to freeze embryos if you didn't have to. Now you can sink it better with the uterus and all if you freeze and nobody thinks a second time about it. And it's giving you so much more time. So you have more time for diagnostics um, retesting, doing whatever you need on the laboratory side while mom gets her hormones back in normal physiologic state uh, after having her eggs retrieved. And, and now um, that's why IVF is so much better now that it was, that's one of the big ones. So you start putting together molecular biology and the, and the growth of embryos in, and the freezing of uh, gametes and embryos. And you put mm-hmm. all those pieces together and uh, it's fun to watch them all sort of synergize with each other to uh, make the field um, more efficient. Definitely. And I think that leads on, I was just saying, I think the most fascinating part of your story is probably the pace at which the science is moving while you're working in the field. But you were there as it's moving and it's kind of a bit slower to begin with and you're having to bring in all these different different parties to kind of progress something forward. And then suddenly... Now we're at a place where the technology is able to do a lot of the things that it was taking maybe years to do. Yep. Um, yeah. So yeah, I guess what 
what do you think you've obviously touched upon um cryo but what other things do you think were quite impactful in the field uh well i i think um the so the molecular technologies have gotten better and better just take pgta as a good example uh, looking at chromosomes in the early days you, you did this with fluorescence in situ hybridization or fish mm-hmm. right and uh uh, it, it, it worked, but not great. And the, and there was a couple of reasons. One of them was that you were, you had one molecular signal per chromosome, one. And now we have a million per, per chromosome. Yeah, it's right? crazy, isn't it? So, um, all of it, you, all that extra data is, yeah. is so incredibly helpful. That's, that's, uh, one big part of it, I think. Um, um, and the other problem was we had a bias of ascertainment. Everybody was taught that, um, the most risky chromosomes, uh, in human development were thirteen chromosomes, 13, 16, 18, 21, X and Y. Mm-hmm. And those were the ones most likely for some reason to be aneuploid. Mm-hmm. Well, no. Those were the ones that allowed development of the embryo in the fetus until you could test it with an amniocentesis and chorion villus sampling. The truth of the matter is trisomy one was just as common. It's just that the embryo didn't get very far with a trisomy one or a monosomy two. And so, in fact, all the chromosomes are practically equally aneuploid, not exactly, but dang close. And, um, and uh, so we, when FISH was being done, it was being done with probes for only a subset of the chromosomes, thinking those are the most serious and important ones when, no, that wasn't true at all. So it was hard to really push the gas pedal of the field with the technology that was testing only a small percentage of the chromosomes with a very subjective interpretation of the mm-hmm. data. One little spot is that one spot or two is this a trisomy or not. And in visually looking at this with a microscope, well, now the computer sequencers um, look at all these places in the genome as much as you want. And then all that data goes into artificial intelligence um, systems to look at it. So we don't even have human interpretation of the data anymore, mm-hmm. uh, which takes human bias out. Um, and uh, I think that's why the, that's one of the big advantages of the field today and why this technology works so well. So in terms of the way the field of PGT is moving, um, we've seen topics like mosaicism, which we've spoken about before, come to the forefront. Um, this is a result of the deepening of our understanding of as we're saying, what has arguably always been there, but that we couldn't see previously. Um, what other areas um, do you see us exploring at a greater depth over the next few years at a genetic level in PGT? Um, well, I think um, the ability to analyze uh, for uh, at-risk um, gene mutation isn't going to particularly change too much other than the data is going to get more solid mm-hmm. um, because the machines and the technology is giving us more information, not just about the mutation, but about the surrounding polymorphisms in the genome. So we have background information that we're looking at the right thing at the right time and all. Mm-hmm. Um, 
um, I think uh, the field is moving rapidly to being able to do single gene and chromosomes at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, that can you can do both of those tests in the same sample now. So uh, while we can do PGTA and PGTM at the same time in the same sample, the technology is now. Um, that we use for one and the other are becoming the same technology. Um, that's going to reduce the, uh, the uh, cost and the time involved in getting the results. And it's going to potentially allow for analyzing embryos for uh, common genetic disorders that run in populations. Okay. So that more population-based screening? Well, I'm, in, I'm not... Main, I'm not in, in favor of doing that kind of population screening in an embryo. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that the fundamentals of genetics are such that it's much more reliable um, and much more um, forward thinking to just test the parents. Mm -hmm. Because then you see all four chromosomes that the parents have instead of some random combination of those four in an embryo. Gametes into, yeah, okay. So if you have five embryos and you don't see... Uh, the true reflection the, of the... Right, because just because it's like flipping coins with the chromosomes. Yeah. So I think it makes more sense to look at the parents. But there are cases where you don't have the parents. Yeah. And especially in modern society now, um, there's all sorts of ways of having a pregnancy and you don't know who the parents are or at least, or maybe half of them. You don't yeah, know who yeah, they yeah. Are, right. And so uh, it's, I think it's very useful to, um, to be able to do that. The other thing is sometimes in PGTM we'll have this situation where the family has the disease, but the parents or the, but the grandparents don't want to be involved and, or they don't want to talk to the grandparents or they're estranged or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, also, with the technology now, we'll be able to pick up new mutations, yeah. which will be exciting. Um, so that will add to this as well. But I don't know about screening embryos for, you know, 10 different potential things. I think maybe if now the pendulum swings back to the IVF side of it, where you could do in vitro maturation of eggs, which everybody's been talking about for 25 years and still not where we want it to be. But if you had a hundred eggs and you could make 75 embryos, um, now you actually have something in which to select with. But if you've got five embryos and you start trying to select for chromosomes and some other random things that are not necessarily disease producing, they maybe increase risk slightly. Mm -hmm. um, you're not going to end up with any embryos to transfer. Yeah. And you're, and you're, and you're driving the field with technology instead of with uh, um, patient care. Mm -hmm. The patient doesn't want to hear about all of that stuff. They want to be pregnant and they'd like their baby to be healthy. Yeah. Um, and but how much is too much information? I think it's very easy to get too much information. Mm. Pretty soon we have Gattaca, uh, right? And uh, I remember when that movie came out and I was just appalled that people thought like that. And now we're sort of beginning to see ourselves there. And it's, yeah. sort of, it's um, worrisome. I remember when we first did HLA testing for transplantation genes for um, 
a couple would have a child with a disorder that could be treated with a bone marrow transplant, mm-hmm. but the um, they couldn't find a match, which is happening more and more frequently because we're homogenizing in the world, we, mm-hmm. right? So, so you have um, African Americans marrying Italians or or Irish or the Somalians are marrying the Singaporeans are marrying the Swiss or whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we start, which is what genetics wants because you're enriching the gene pool when Mm -hmm. that happens This is beautiful from from a geneticist point of view. But if you're trying to find a match to an individual that has HLA genes from Japan and from Ireland, good luck. Yeah. And so the likelihood of a match actually working becomes more and more difficult and the immune suppression drugs that the patient has to get for the rest of their life so that they don't reject the marrow transplant becomes more and more um, less like less and less likely to work. And so um, by being able to do this HLA with embryos and having another child who's perfectly healthy and doesn't have the disease of concern and has when born cord blood to give to the sibling I mean, we've got thousands of them now, and these children are taking no medications at all. They're graduating from college now already. Yeah, they're, they're, they're graduating from college, and they're, they had an incurable lethal disease, and now their sibling uh, saved their life. And what, what a wonderful thing for a sibling to be able to do is save your, your brother or sister's life. That's wonderful. It is pretty amazing. Yeah. We yeah. have a lot of stories about that. A lot, a lot of books have been written about it now, about these families, and they're wonderful, heartwarming stories, actually. Yeah, and I think that comes back to, like, I guess, wrapping up this conversation, the whole hearing you talk about that, and just, again, going back to the patients and back to those people's lives that you're touching through all this research and all the time spent and all the, all the different people that have, that have built into this, into this field and that one common goal. Um, and, yeah, I think it's, um, it's pretty pretty awesome it's great that you're that you're getting this award here because you truly deserve it Look, what's really cool about it is that all of us are working as a team yeah to help a couple have what they want which is reasonable most couples want all they want is a healthy baby yeah in which the a t g and c in the gene of concern or the chromosome of concern is okay and then they go on like everyone else and have a have a family Mm-hmm. And um, and whatever life brings to that, um, but they get they, they they can have a start. Yeah, and there were so many that couldn't have a start, and that now can that now can. through this field. So yeah, thank you for chatting to us today. Again, congratulations on your award, and yeah, all of your achievements in your awesome career. And yeah, hopefully talk to you again soon. I'll drag you on a podcast again soon, but yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.